2: Nordic
1: Crimes is a part of the ACAST family.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
1: I'd like to warn listeners that today's episode contains subject matter that some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. This is part two of my chat with former Australian bank robber and career criminal Russell Mansa. In our previous episode, Russell and some fellow inmates had just escaped custody while at a court appearance, and he was heading back to his home of Mount
0: Druitt. And when we got to Mount Druitt, there were so many it was like fucking, I don't know, it was like a, a ticket take parade. It was that well celebrated. Like people are going, uh, like people are fucking walking past their houses. You didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to hide or anything like that because if the coppers were even inside, people would say, say jump in your house, you know, or someone would ring and say, mate, the coppers are down the road. Fuck it. Everyone was looking out for each other, you know. And um, so I knocked on this door, the first door we knocked on. And um, uh, the woman says, geez, you took your time to get here. You know, the beds are made, I'm, I'm making as a roast. I knew you'd been a while since you've had a good feed. And and then, um, you know, and then I I said, um, you know, I said, I said I want a kit. What a kit is, is like an armed robbery, a couple of guns, a slight hammer to steal a car, a couple of clovers and some throwaway clothes. And uh, I said, well, so she said, you yeah, know, she made some phone call and an hour later as a knock on the door. A young bloke said, oh, Dad said you know, he's needed a kid, and the kid's handing his dad's kid for the day, and it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. it's something like, like, people can't comprehend, like, how, I don't know how, like, supportive people are in that, in, in those days, people are, you know, and um, so long, and, you know, and, and, you know, we go down to shops, and people are shouting us a feed like, you know, knock on the door, someone's dropped four kilos of prawns off for us, you know, making sure we're eating right, and, you know, getting the good stuff in us and, and, you know, and, or, you know, someone, a kid had come up on the door and say, oh, Dad said to say the coppers are fucking three blocks away just in case they're on their way here and, and there's cockatoos out. Like, people are watching out for you. It's a fucking, like, my mate wasn't from that area. And he goes, how good is this area? He said, man, how good are the people in now, Drew. How supportive are they? You know, so they love the underdog. Because the coppers have done some pretty bad things in those areas, you know. Like, they treat a lot of the people very poorly in those areas, you know, bashed and harassed. Asked them and cause a lot of coppers went from that area and you know there was always that you know uh, narrative that we're bad people scumbags and we're all criminals and we're all tied with the same brush and you know a lot of us believe you know from that you know that rhetoric we believed that we were and we weren't much and you know i don't post about it this morning about don't believe the bullshit you know i was told from a young age i went to a school went to a high school that had a fence around they used to lock us in and tell us they were preparing us for prison you know? that christ. was christ you know that's what that's what they used to tell us, and um, and um, so you know it was that sort of run on that sort of programming, and, and, and you know, and, and so we all acted like it, and we, and we looked out for each other.
1: Now on the run, the one thing they obviously need is money, and if it's one thing a bank robber knows how to get quickly, it's cash.
0: I was on remand for robbing the National Australia Bank at Tamarama, and in that bank, I'd taken a gun off a security guard, getting the security guard, and. Anyway, so I'm walking up the road and he sees me again and he's shaking his fucking head. He just sees me walking towards him, I'm dressed up, I've got a balaclava rolled up in my head. He goes, nah, and that was Christmas, so it was, I think the date was like the 15th of December 1990. It was 10 days out from Christmas and um, I took the gun off him. My mate jumped the counter and started getting the money. So me and him having this conversation and he said, uh, man, I'm going to lose my job. I said, no, no, no. I said, man, I'll make sure you don't lose your job. And uh, and he's going, oh, fuck, i got a family. I said, that's okay, mate. I said, mate, I'm going to make sure you don't lose your job. I said, yeah, of no partner. Anyway, when my mate come back over the counter and we we're about to go, I give him his gun back and wish him Merry Christmas. And, um, and he's looking at me, looking at the gun, and I'm running down the street thinking, fuck, I hey, he doesn't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my mate, says, we, you know, got to a safe place, he goes, mate, where's that gun? I said, oh, I'll give it back to him. He goes, what do you mean you fucking give us that? You know, poor bloke's going to lose his fucking job. I said, oh, I don't want him to lose his fucking job, you know. And he goes, well, you yeah, give him his fucking gun back. It's not like he never fucking shot us. And I said, oh, no, he was a nice guy, you know, he just was worried about his family.
1: Russell and his mate, now cashed up, decide it's time to get out of town. And they buy two first class tickets to Perth.
0: Back then, it wasn't – we didn't have to have ID. And yeah, yeah, of course. So think could just go to the airport and buy a ticket. We bought a first-class ticket each, flew over to Perth, stayed at the Parmelia Hilton in Perth and was jogging up to the Royal Perth Yacht Club every morning and having breakfast with all the yachts And it was the time when Nike just brought out the slogan, Just Do It. So all of our clothes had Just Do It on it, you know. And um, so, yeah, we were a bit of a novelty over there. And um, you know, people were looking at us, everyone on these us some clothes and um, – but we never got challenged over there one bit, you know, and um, it's not like it is now. It's not like with social media. that Your, your face is plastered everywhere. Yeah. It's like we wouldn't have even been in the newspapers over there. And um, So anyway, we made our way up to Broome, stayed there for a couple of days and then flew into Darwin. And our first night in Darwin, we're in a nightclub called the Bloody Good Drinker's Bar, the Frontier Hotel in Darwin. And um, my mate comes over and he's got this girl and he goes, hey, Russell, this is Tammy. Tammy works in a bank. Isn't she beautiful? And Tammy was average. I said, yeah, Tammy's gorgeous. And um, so she'd given us all a rundown on, on you know, and we'll we're we'll running light on money at that stage. So we had to we're going we have to go to work again soon and um so she told us everything about the town. So we broke back then sports stores used to you could buy a pump action shotgun from a sports store. So we broke into all the sports store got four pump action shotguns and um and um, went and we stole a yellow RX-7. Now this yellow RX-7, there was only one yellow RX-7 in the whole of the Northern Territory and it belonged to some TV personality that everyone knew. So we're driving along in it, going to rob this bank and everyone's waving at us, and looking at giving us strange looks and we're waving back. And and um, so we um, robbed this ANZ bank at Parap uh, in, in, and we got fuck all out of that too. But um, a couple of days later we're at the airport my mate got dragged off the fucking plane at the airport by the detective. They were obviously onto him and um, i seen it from a distance and, uh, and then I, I tried to follow him. Uh, I jumped in the car and tried to follow him, he didn't jump out, so I took off to a place called Mataranka, 400 k's south of Darwin and I jumped on the bus, but I just, I, looked, I knew I was in some trouble from there on in because I knew the bus driver was on this phone all night before mobile phones. was those big, big box things that they could do and he was on the phone and... But overnight, I, I stopped at the place Club Pine Creek and I bought a Kubra hat with the corks on it. and I love Australian T-shirt. And there's a, pe- a pair of secondhand hiking boots and I bought them and uh, like a bus driver's shorts. And and throughout my travels throughout the night, I met this girl and she was like a Norwegian backpacker and I said, you know, I had some money on me. I said, um, we'll stay at a nice five-star when we get there. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the morning we pull up in Alice Springs and um, about like as I would the last people off because we we're sitting right at the back of the bus, and as I jumped off, all these blokes jumped out on top of me, and this girl's just looking at me and I'm going Helga, Helga, call the embassy! I'm being bullied. What are you doing? And they're calling me, "Yeah, you have gone an So I'm saying, "Fata, fata, get off me!" And I was yelling and screaming and fucking. Everyone's just looking. And they're looking at each other like, thinking.
1: Not quite hell. sure if they've got the right guy. Yeah,
0: we've got the wrong guy. We've got the fucking Swedish tourist. They were taking pressure off my hands and that, like, let me have a bit of range. And this whole couple walks and they go, OK, hands from Sweden. He goes, You haven't got a tattoo on your shoulder blade? He goes, Off you go. And he lifted my shirt up and he goes, Game's up, Russell.
1: The game is most certainly up and Russell is back in custody and off to court. Except this time. It's in the harsh environment of Australia's north, Darwin.
0: Those redneck hillbillies up there, man, they, uh, they had a point to prove with me, and some city slicker, and, and they wanted to punch it out of me. And um, so I was really, in that jail up there in Barram. I was really exposed to, like, I, 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 I done like nine months, nine months in darkness. Basically, it was a segregation cell on my own, um, with no no light, and not even like not even a mattress. I was sleeping on a concrete slab. 24 hours a day in darkness. One hour out in a little exercise yard that was the size of a ground run, um, which they turned the showers on and often that would be boiling hot, so I couldn't even on the fucking showers. bird bathing most of it. Had the sun beating down on on that cell all day. It was, so it was like 40 degrees, maybe like 60. And it was like a fucking sauna. And, um, and you know, and we used to punch on a lot with the prison officers who had this point to prove that you know this city's like, um. Fucking you know, and then we went to court and got the biggest sentence ever handed out in the Northern Territory, we got nine years for because um, they never had precedence of what they can sentence because banks didn't get robbed up there. Yeah. So they precedents, had precedence and they'll use them fucking precedents like home invasions where a woman got raped and shit like that. And I am saying am embarrassed, hang on, no one got raped in my own robbery, that shouldn't be even relevant. You know, okay. And uh, so we got the biggest sentence ever handed out from the Northern Territory. The judge said, if he could have given me life, he fucking would have. Like, then I was thinking, fuck, I never killed anyone. No one even felt threatened, so they said, but I um, never hurt my kids or anything but I don't think, fuck, you know. And then in that time, like, so I was in jail up there. They ran a story on the girl, the Tammy, who was the bank teller in the Who magazine. And about me, they said, Russell so." Was a breaking in a burnt merchant with soap star looks who graduated the fucking bank robberies, you know what I mean? And fucking, man, that just never left me while I was in jail up there, soap I looks. Telling me I looked like Jason Donovan at the time and um, there was no Colleen Eggs in jail, let me tell you. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, so, you know, and I eventually went back to New South Wales and um, and that's where the fucking funding came because back then they said these things called sentencing indications. So they say, if you plead guilty, we'll give you X amount of time. So I went to Penrith Court, and this fucking weirdo judge, man, I'll tell you, it was like seven out of a horror movie. So you come into the court sometimes, and there's a knock on the door, and the judge will come out in his gowns, right? But this day, the clerk come out, but this judge appeared from underneath his desk, okay, and it was like Rrr! And he was licking his lips, he was going Rrr. He goes, I believe the accused being offered a, a very fine sentence, and it was 18 years or not prior period of 12 years. And, and the barrister stepped forward who he encouraged me to take it and I pushed him out the way. I said, Don't worry about it. I said, You're safe. I said, I'm here to tell you, I said, I'm not gonna accept that sentence. I said, you know, I'm pleading not guilty. I said, so let's go let's set a trial date. And he goes, Oh, well, you have a very that's a very good sentence, he said, because if I had my way, you'd be getting a lot more more than that. He's licking his lips and I, oh, I think it's crazy. I said, no, nah, no, nah, thanks. And um, I went back to the jail and I I I was, I was telling one of the boys there about it, and he said, Look, I've got a mate. His name's Peter Zara, he's a really good barrister. And he goes and he'll be able to help you. And um, so Peter came in and said you. Peter went on to be the head of the district court in Sydney and he's just a good guy, man. He was a really good man, forever great. He died recently and um, I only had good to say about Peter. Just a great man. Anyway, so he had a game plan. He said, I think I could get you a lot better. And I said, "What's well, good, Peter. How would you feel about six years on the bottom? I said, yeah, there were dolls on. I said, "No, I could do that quite easy. And I'd been in for three or four at that stage. And um, anyway, so we went to court. The first time we went up, we went in front of a judge called Peter Dent. He offered me fifteen with an eight. I said, "Peter, take it, because I don't want to. I don't want the legislation to change and something to come along." I said, "Just take it." So I pleaded guilty, got the fifteen with an eight.
1: Yet again, Russell does his time and is back out in the world, this time eight years clean and sober, and in fact talks me through a funny experience on the night he was released.
0: So I got sentenced, uh, you know, four years to go and I was tackling it. I was just fucking, I was really prepared. I was, you know, I had every intention of never going back to jail again, getting out working and getting a business and and not using drugs. And it was a real funny thing because I went out for dinner last night and I'd come across a bloke called Eric Jury, he was a, a nightclub owner in Sydney. And um so what happens? I got a midnight release. So midnight they used to let you go out in one past second past midnight class your days of release. So my girl at the time picked me up in the limo with a bunch of my friends and we went down to this club on Oxford Street, which is known for gay clubs and everything like that. Gays and straights were hanging out together and everyone was getting on and, and these dance clubs it was the first sort of dance club thing. And I'd never been in it i had been in a club for fucking years. And um and all these gay blokes are coming up to me, fucking kissing me. Saying, "When did you come out?" And I said, oh, tonight." You know, so gay guys thought it was my coming out party. It was my actually not getting out party. You know, and um, getting kisses on the cheek, left, right, and centre, and a couple of squeezes on the arse. And I think, <laughs> Fuck, jeez, they're friendly, aren't they? And you know, one bloke's saying to me, "How does your family feel?" I said, "Oh, they feel great." <laughs> Went to food lunch today. You know, they said, "How does it feel? Good? How does it feel to be friends? I can't wait. Can't wait to get a job and, and like <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, uh, I moved to the Gold Coast from Sydney. I was, I was a fitness instructor at a Japanese jockey school. Or a place down at Cabarita Beach, and um, I met uh, my partner. And you know, we went off and had a couple of kids. We bought a home in Currumbin, and you know, and everything was rosy. I, I had a pretty successful marketing and advertising business, and um, but you know, the whole thing of the abuse was never addressed and yeah, until it was addressed. It was just a festering fucking sore, you know, and. Um, then I started to drink and snort, snort coke, and then I'd fucking wake up with a hangover and I'd use heroin. So in about 2014, I was on a plane going to Western Australia and a bloke – I don't know, I was reading a book called Sleepers, and Sleepers is about the Kevin Bacon movie about these kids that get abused in a boy's home, and then they go on to square up on their abusers. And um, he planted a seed in my mind. And i got get pinched. I, I robbed uh, Suncourt Netway Bank and uh, Griffith Street, Koolangatta. i come out, I got tackled by a bunch of fucking super citizens and – um. And one of them said to me, a prolific thing he said to me. He said, Mate, I just saved your life. And, um, and I didn't see it at the time. It was like the catalyst for a lot of things in my life. And I'm, and, you know, I'm in the police cells, and um, all the coppers are fucking coming out and look at me like I was a fucking. Tasmanian tiger or a fucking dinosaur because I'd never seen a fucking bank robber. Well, bank
1: yeah, property. because by now, bank robberies are really just a thing of the past.
0: Way of past. You know, I, I say this, the party was over, but I kept on turning up and um, and they never seen it. It was a big thing to all these young coppers to to sort of arrest a, a fucking bank robber.
1: Once again, Russell is facing what he believes to be a lengthy prison sentence. Except this time, his plan wasn't to escape the prison physically.
0: And then I went to the prison with every intention to kill myself. I just made peace with death, you know. I I thought my life was over. So I got into that cell that night. It was the end of January 2014, and it was so hot not one bit of cold air in that cell. It was all blocked off. And um, it was, I don't even think there was air in there, and I was so depressed. but the plan was to use a coaxial cable from the TV to hang myself with, and there was a coaxial cable that had been vandalised. It was about, you know, two inches long. It wouldn't have wrapped around my fucking tail and lay my neck. And um, you know, so I had to bought the plans to, to knock myself. And I thought, well, I'll do it properly. Next day, I'll get it. will pro- get it all properly. I'll do it properly. And um, next morning, Blake, there's a display window in the door where the prison officers can come and check on you overnight time to make sure you're still there. Yeah. And um, this bloke comes up to me who. In the park, I'd done jail there before and I suspected he was a sex offender and it was later confirmed wise. and he offered me a shot and he said, you know, he said, I know you and I have never gone on before. He said, but I'm just offering you this as a police deal.' And I, uh, and I looked at him and I scratched my head and just all this shit was running through my head and I banged on the window and I said... No matter how bad I was ever feeling, I said, I would never take anything off of you because I know who you are and what you've done, even though you deny it. I said, I oh, know. Later came out and watched what he was in for. But, um, and I was always saying, I said, this bloke's no good. He's a sexist. And he was denying, Oh, I've done this. I've done it for breaking and So I told him to go away. I said, never come near me again. I said, oh, I'll fucking hurt you. And, um, so I get led out to unit that day. Walk downstairs. His young boy's got his book spread out. I said, What are you doing? He goes, I'm studying the best psychology. He said, Remember those years ago, you gave me that advice. You said, I'm a smart kid. I should do something with my life. He said, Well, you know, I took your advice and I'm doing something. And he looked me up and down with disdain and just went, Maybe you should fucking take your own advice and went back to his study. And I went, Oh, oh, oh." (laughs) is that 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 (laughs) it? yeah and then my mate calls me up my mate's a lawyer and, you know and i helped help my mate establish his law firm like i was a sales rep for him and you know i said man i'm fuck, nick and he goes no nah, not really so i think we can pull off a fucking decent result and he said how would you feel about doing three or four years i said i could do it in the heartbeat because I, I had my mind around 10 or 12 years yeah he said no nah, no nah, i think you can get your three or four i'll do a few things call in a few favors and get your three or four so i walked out of there more past education. Now, the education block in prison, the door of that thing is never open. It's fucking guarded. They, you fucking get nowhere near it. The door was open. Not a prison officer inside. And I could see a teacher there. So I'd just done a beeline to this teacher. And I said, what can I get? And I said, you know, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to study law. And I said, um, so they said, we'll get you on a program called the Tertiary Preparation Program. And I said, you know, I'm going to struggle. I left school at 14. And um, and I said, no, no, we'll work this and we'll make it happen for you. I get to my cell that night. By this time, the boys had got me a TV with a coaxial cable that I could have home myself with. Click on the TV, 7.30 report comes on, which is one of my favourite shows. And the first thing there is it says the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child abuse, and I was talking about how that was running, and I was chasing a few people like George Carl, Brian Houston. and I thought, oh, fuck, you know. He's, and it was just like the universe was pointing me yeah. in the dog right direction all the way. It was going, nah. No, there's no coaxial cable to kill you. So we've got better plans for you. And, um, you know, and that was just that, it was like that light bulb moment. I said, i will go to write to these people. And um, I went and got on the phone the next day, I got the address, wrote a fool's cap page, just one page. And I, and I, you know, I've done these things before where I've made amends with someone. I'd write it down, what I've done, and then burn it, you know. So I wrote it down, posted it to them. A couple of weeks later, they called me out. And, uh, you know, one of the first things they said, look, we know that this happened to you. What happened to you? I said, "We believe you," and it was like the first time someone said to me, "They believe me." What had happened must be an it
1: amazing like, feeling. Like you've just gone through this whole process. You've kept this bottled up inside you. You've told people about it in the past. Who told you to shut up? It's just made it worse. And all of a sudden, these people are now listening and saying, "We believe you. We want to hear your story."
0: I felt like a piece of boiling hot steel getting dipped into a bucket of fucking ice cold water. Like,
1: yeah,
0: like relief. Yeah, wow. And then um, straight away, as soon as I finished talking to them. They should I, You've got to go on another meeting. I said, "What's this other fucking meeting?" I said, "We've got a trauma counselor for you." And um, so I had some English woman who I ended up doing trauma counseling for four years with. I never ever met her face to face. I never knew what she looked like. I used to visualise what she looked like when we were talking. And, um, and that was the beginning of the trauma counseling. And that was the, I think, writing the letter was the beginning of the healing journey, and um, and the, and the counselling was really topping it off.
1: Finally, he's able to address his trauma and start to try and repair the damage from his past. Part of this was, of course, giving evidence to the Royal Commission. However, this would pose an entirely new problem inside prison walls, which he decided to face head on.
0: I got sentenced. I got that four years that my mate said I'd get, you know, and then I began my journey with the Royal Commission. And um, so I was in the yard one day, like well, have got two phones in a yard, Everyone in that yard is waiting to hit, use the phone, so everyone knows what everyone's talking yeah. about. And I had seen a few a couple of young blokes that are just sort of whispering thinking that I was talking to the coppers or something because I was talking to the Royal Commission. And in the terminology I was talking. So um, I had to call a yard meet. I had to call 60 blokes together and say, hey, listen, I ain't talking to the police. I, had I was still sort of full disclosure. I ain't talking to the police. I'm actually talking to the Royal Commission about the abuse I suffered and... Um, I said, I don't, I don't want to be here no more, I don't want to be with you around you guys. You guys are nice guys. I said, but I'm going to live a fruitful life, you know. Fucking, they just applauded me. I went, fucking well. And I, was, I was thinking I was going to get a totally different reaction to it. And then so many of them come up to me and said, you know, same thing happened to me. How do we begin, you know, begin the journey. And that was when my, I guess my business was for, sort of formed when I realized I had this, you know, I, create, I created a platform for people to talk about, you know, a trauma-informed platform where people could talk about what had happened. And them. And um and off it went. You know, I, helped, I left that jail and I think I'd help, help 48 people tell their stories to the Royal Commission. And um, you know, I'm recognised by the Royal Commission as, as being that guy, as that, I don't know, the advocate, uh, so to speak.
1: Russell begins to better himself and focuses on finally getting out and changing his life forever. However, the prison system isn't done with him yet.
0: I got wind that I was wanted in New South Wales for more robberies. So what I'd done when I was in jail in Queensland, I wrote to the Attorney General, I wrote to the coppers. I said, if there's any more charges, bring them on. Let's go. Let's kick it off now. Yeah. Let's begin the judicial process. So, you know, and they were writing back to me, no, no, mate, you're sweet, all clear, nothing to worry about. Two weeks to go. I've got parole. I'm going all rehab. I put myself in a rehab because I needed to learn how to live. It's four years clean. Coppers turn up take me out to the police station, charging me six robberies. And uh, the bail denied, so I had to stay in jail. So anyway, I was going through the compensation process for my claim. And that come about, I ended up getting some money. Not a lot, not a lot, but enough to pay for some lawyers. So, I brought in a lawyer called Peter O'Brien, and the first thing he said, We're going to get you out on bail. I said, Man, I've got no chance. Six bank robbers, I'm not getting out of bail. He goes, I'll get you out on bail. I said, What they've done is wrong, and the courts will see that way. And um, so I went to Central Local Court, and you don't get bail in the local court. And um, this, I've just got this really fucking nice magistrate, and, he, and I'm forever grateful. I'd love to go and see him one day and, and thank him. And he said to the prosecutor, he goes, do you agree that this is a dirty trick the cops have done? And she couldn't say it wasn't. And he goes, this bloke has done everything he can to bring these charges on and they've waited for this long. And she goes, yeah, well, I have to agree. And he goes, no, and on that basis, I'm going to get him bail. He we've just got to work out we're going to give him bail and now uh, give him bail until rehab. And um, and off I went. And I, I know. But I, even the parole officer at the jail was doing everything he could to trip me up. And I said, what is this? And I said to him one day, is this like a square up for me talking to the Royal Commission about the abuse or something? Is it, you know, is it some sort of fucking square up? Is it about upset people? Oh no, no, I'm just doing my job. Um, it's to a rehab up at Coffs Harbor called a Dell house. And a lot of rehabs have this policy that, you know, you're not allowed to train because it's uh jail behavior. And for me, exercise has always been my antidepressant. I've trained all the time. Even when I am on drugs, I used to train So go to the gym club and fucking do something. But, um, and exercise and, and it really fitted me well this this rehab because we we're training every day we'll fit and um so that was like a four-month program i got to the end of that and they offered me the general manager's job and a company car and everything like that they said we want you to come back here and run the show because we believe you're the perfect fit for it and, and it wasn't for me and you know, because i always had intentions of setting up my business to help survivors of institutional abuse and um, yeah so i got out in the community and um but i was still on an outreach program, so I had to go back to that rehab once once a week and train and talk and and um but um you know so I got out set up the voice of uh, the voice of the survivor it was it's now called the Warriors. and um you know I just fucking started I had a laptop computer on a barbecue table and and, uh, and off it went and we were just fucking overwhelmed and um you know it was trials and tribulations I had a couple of people work for me to come in and stole my they just think this is a cash cow and they you know, weren't doing it for the same reasons yeah. I was doing it. I just doing it for cash, and um, you know, but off it went, and we, you know, we grew from, you know, just being on a barbecue table to a little office, and a bigger office to a, to what it is today. I think we employed about twenty two people. We got seventeen thousand, I know, eighteen thousand clients. Work with forty two different law firms nationally, and you know, it's been a journey, man. It's been a fucking journey, and the business Crazy. is going well. And then um, I, I love doing what i do and and uh, you know, I, I take great pride in it. I think for a lot of people a lot of you lost young people, is when you find your purpose in life, everything seems to change. You know, I, I love what I do. I love the people I work with. I love the people I meet. I get invited to do some beautiful fucking things. I'm off to a book launch tonight, you know. Of, um, you know, I'm doing a movie. I'm fucking doing a movie at the end of the year with Guy Pearce and Ben Mendelsohn. It's a prison movie, but you know what I mean? Beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> yeah.
1: Who right? are acting what you know, mate, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not a specialist in the field, but um, yeah. I'm doing documentaries. <laughs> like, I'm getting... Like, I'm an advocate too. Like, I'd like to change what goes on in the prison system. The prison system is extremely fucking broken here in Australia. Yeah. We we're, we're moving towards a prison industrial complex where they're privatizing jails and making them profitable. You know, so to say crime does pay, but not for the criminals. It yeah. pays for the people keeping them. Uh, and you know, I'd like to get them to the really really look at fucking rehabilitation because there's none there and I'm really
1: bigger well, and that's the thing that's what I was going to ask you because you know obviously I deal heavily with the United States and, and the prison system over there which is just as screwed up um you know and privatized privatization is rife over there with that and and that's the thing there is there's there's no such thing as rehabilitation at all and as I was going to say does does the Australian system have rehabilitation involved in it
0: no, look, they've closed the classrooms and put fucking sewing machines in. You know what I mean? I, I remember being in prison and they had us sewing up body bags, and I remember saying to prison, "I was, like, hey man, I have got a drug problem. I don't have a sewing problem." He goes, "Just get on there and fucking sew." And I say, "Man, I don't need to sew. It's gonna." I said, "I'm mucking around." I'm saying, "So what's this teaching me about using drugs?" You know. You go, nothing, it's just fucking, you know, this is a job. This is what you got to do. And I'd say, yeah, but, you know, and in, in the end, i just refuse to work in their workshops. It's like, give me a job, mum and laws, or something like that, but I'm not working in your workshops.
2: You have one minute remaining.
1: Russell Manser is not a man who blames his crimes on what happened to him. However, he is a man who now focuses his energy and time on trying to help others who have experienced situations like he did as a youngster. I want to say a big thank you to Russell for coming on and telling me about his story. And please make sure you go and check out his podcast, The Stick Up, as well as giving him a follow on Instagram, where you can find out more about the great work that he's doing. If you or someone you know is struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please talk to someone. There are many organisations you can reach out to for help. We have listed a few suggestions in the show notes of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted, and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. Hi,
0: I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.